Good morning, travelers, pre-med students, and undergraduates. Welcome to Doctors In. This podcast features top-performing proactive physicians with whom we try to dissect what makes them the best in their respective specialties. I am your host, MD Hawk, and I am currently in the medical field. In this podcast, we try to ask the right questions to deconstruct study strategies, useful habits, constructive failures, and life lessons. Join us as we navigate through the different specialties in medicine. Three, two, one, and we are live. Today we're joined by Dr. Jill Grimes, who is a board-certified family medicine physician with a passion for preventative medicine. She earned her medical degree from the esteemed Baylor College of Medicine and completed her medical residency in Austin, Texas. From co-authoring medical textbooks to serving as a clinical instructor in academic medicine, Dr. Grimes is very much involved with medical studies. She authored her first book titled Seductive Delusions, How Everyday People Catch STDs that was published by Johns Hopkins. Dr. Grimes is part of the Know Your Meds team, which is an app designed to help patients become more informed about their medications and better able to communicate with their healthcare providers. From her nearly three decades of experience in family medicine and and call it systems, she wrote her award-winning book that perhaps she's best known for, which is titled The Ultimate College Student Health Handbook, your guide for everything from hangovers to homesickness. Now, this book has a new edition coming out on March on March 1st, so that will be very exciting. To follow up with Dr. Grimes, you can find her on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Grimes MD. That's J-I-L-L-G-R-I-M-E-S. MD or her website with informative blog posts and free chapter access to her books at www.jillgrimesmd.com. So with all that said, we can finally welcome our guest to the inn. Well, hello there, Dr. Grimes. Very excited to have you here. Hello, and thank you so much for having me. I think this is a fabulous idea for a podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I mean, it is going pretty well considering we have guests such as yourself. (laughs) So we'll get started. And I do want to start at a very odd place, odd for the listeners perhaps, but I hope you can provide some context to alleviate that. So I would like to bring up your neighbor and the handwritten index card next to the first aid kit box. So maybe you can help me understand how your index cards full of advice evolved into your college health handbook. Absolutely. So many years ago, our next door neighbor her daughter was headed off to college and her daughter was old enough to babysit our little girls at the time. And um, her name is Elise. And when Elise was headed off to school, her mom said, oh my gosh, Jill, she's not going to have Dr. Jill next door. Help me put together a first aid kit. So I said, sure. So I, that was my graduation gift. And um, I put together a very thorough first aid kit for her and proudly handed it to her mom. And her mom said, yeah, she didn't know how to use any of this stuff. <laughs> She's like, when did she take Tylenol or Advil? When, which cream is for what? And, you know, like, can you, can you just like write some cheat notes down? So I did. So I literally in her house right there, grabbed an index card and wrote down, I don't know, probably five things about what to do if you're throwing up and when to take Tylenol versus Advil and all these kind of really basic first 80 kind of things. And, um, and then that gift became my go-to high school graduation gift. And as our girls grew up, we had more and more 
of their older friends, first their babysitters and then their peers who were going off to college. And that one index card progressed to um, literally about an 18 page laminated booklet. Um, I was also a Girl Scout leader for 10 years. So I love crafting. So you can imagine I had a lot of fun decorating the first aid kits, making them all fun and, you know, college appropriate and personalized along with the personalized notes. But ultimately, before my children went off to college, in the meantime, I had written several other books. And so I knew the whole book publishing process. And I realized I had way more to say than that little laminated booklet. So that's how it evolved into the actual college student health handbook. But I wanted I wanted to call it Hangnails, Hangovers to Hangnails, because I wanted to get the whole head to toe, but the publisher didn't buy into that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems like it turned, I mean, it went from five cases to 18 page booklet to now 50 common issues specifically. So I guess what metric did you go off of when you're trying to figure out which issues or which cases to include in the book? Well, so um, after working in private practice for 20 years, I actually worked on campus at a large university where I only saw college students. And so um, for another you know six or seven years. And I so I really learned very quickly what exactly college students knew and what they didn't know and what they didn't know they didn't know. And um, so I tried to include the most common things and, and I went for, I wanted to have injuries, illnesses and anxieties. So test anxiety is something, man, we just treat all the time in college health. And I don't, <laughs> our audience is College students and medical students. Hello, people. Do I have to tell you about test anxiety? I don't think so. But there's actually a lot we can do to help with that. And a lot of people, you know, a lot of students don't realize certain behavioral modifications, but also that there are medications that we can prescribe beta blockers that have minimal to no side effects and can just, you know, be a game changer. So I wanted to be able to include stuff like that. But I also wanted some rare conditions like a spontaneous pneumothorax that you know, this is a, a spontaneously collapsed lung, happens in tall, skinny guys, um, more than other demographics. And, but this is something that we see, you know, once a month, maybe two or three times a semester. It's not super common, but it's dangerous. And it's one of those things that, that a lot of times college students don't know they need to be worried about. Same thing with PEs, pulmonary embolisms, that can come from being on birth control pills can increase your risk for that. So, so scary, life-threatening things, um, just a couple of those, mostly the common things that, that students have. Um, and again, injuries, illnesses, and anxieties. Yeah. And I mean, I must say, after I was reading through some of the chapters of the book, uh, it's it's very info packed, but it is also very much digestible, which is something that is very much appreciated because it is very different from the typical, okay, I have these symptoms, I'm going to Google it. And then Google tells you, okay, you have cancer or you have yeah, the you're know, crazy. Yeah. It's blank, 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 and you could possibly die. That's right. Dr. Google's infamous for that. <laughs> Right. And and it just it's just perfect because you have these different kind of um, subtitles that really say, OK, like uh, these are the symptoms. This is what you can do. This is what it can mean if it's serious and things like that, which is very important to say the least. Oh, I really appreciate that. I love hearing that it's digestible. It's not meant to be a sit down and read a book. It's a I have a problem. Let me see what I can do for it right now. That's 
evidence-based medicine, reliable, good advice, and not just random Dr. Google. Yeah. And I like that we have that daily, you know, dose of uh, goodness in terms of trying to find advice and really good advice in that sense. And it's advice that comes to navigating through the college lifestyle, right, in terms of partying, drinking, drugs, etc. And uh, I read one of the chapters that you had on vaping and pot and the statistics you kind of brought forth were staggering, uh, especially to know that nearly one third of teens who use e-cigs like Miley's Jewels will start smoking traditional cigarettes within the next six months. And I'm sure the numbers are higher now since the book was published a while back, um, since it's become more pre- prevalent within the last five years. So to give more context, you point to other bizarre statistics about you know other types of new wants behavior. So with all that said about your expertise, what would be your advice for someone who's trying to, I guess, assimilate into the college lifestyle? The main thing is you're going to reflect what your friend group does. It is the rare person, even party groups have, oh, that's Jill. She's a designated driver. You know, they have that one person. But it's hard to be that one person. It's really hard to be that one person because you feel responsible for other people's behavior. So the main thing, when people are starting college, I always tell them a couple of things. One, your friend group, the first week, the first month, your roommate, whatever, they may be your lifelong friends, but odds are good they're not going to be. And that's okay. Um, I encourage people to look for three different groups to join. Like one, um, one maybe service style group. Fine if you want to do Greek, but don't only do that because um, one, you may not get the one Greek place you wanted, um, and that's a tough way to start school if you're devastated by only that. Um, but two, again, you need to choose Greek really carefully because you know, and I'm not just picking on the Greeks. I think they can be a great source of belonging and positive service and all kinds of good things. But also as a group, they, they party hard. They, there's much more binge drinking and, um, and, and drug use. So I think, you know, you, you really want to, again, three different groups, three different kinds of groups, maybe a faith-based group or, or just something totally frivolous, like juggling club. Um, you know, one of my daughters joined juggling club and was like, what are you, why would you do that? But that, <laughs> it was fun. You know, it was just a random thing. And it turned out to be great with COVID. They could do it outside. They're socially distant. So it was fine. But the point is you want to surround yourself with people who are doing behaviors that you want to role model also, because it's hard to be the only one not. When I talk to um, the, the studies will show you that a third of college students don't drink, don't smoke, don't have sex across the board by choice. And if I say that to a freshman frat guy who's pledging and I say, oh yeah, a third of college students don't, you know, don't, don't drink. He thinks I'm insane because a hundred percent of his friends binge drink every weekend. That's, that's part of the culture. And again, I'm not trying to slam all frats, not all frats do that, but you know, I'm just going with generalities here. And so if your friend group, whether it's the honors program or whether it's a frat or whether it's whatever, if they're all binge drinking every weekend, you know that's not going to be a healthy behavior and there's a lot of risks associated with that and i would encourage you to look for other friends yeah i would say 
in this case, and I'm glad that you brought up friend groups, maybe like from my personal experience, I'm probably the odd one out because for some reason, um, I've never heard the urge or curiosity to try out drugs or anything of that uh, that was kind of offered to me from my friends. So I guess there are people like me, you know, who don't feel compelled to try weed, vape, cigs, right? So it is easier to not get involved. However, though, um, there are people on the other side of the polarity or anywhere in between even where they are curious and it is fine to be curious of, of like obviously to try different compounds so what advice do you have for people with not really addictive personalities but rather a curious mindset in terms of trying out new things trying out new drugs having new experiences things like that well i really encourage them to learn as much as they can about whatever it is they're wanting to try unfortunately you have to understand in my position, particularly um, being on a campus, I see the bad outcomes. So um, I'm in Texas currently. And so I will tell you, pot is not legal here. So anyone getting pot is, is getting it illegally. And what I tell them is, hey, look, if you didn't grow it, you don't know what's in it. And what do I mean by that? I'm not encouraging that they go out and start growing pot. What I'm saying is that drug dealers sell pot by weight. So they put things in there to make it heavier, like crushed glass particles, or they put something in there to make it stronger so that they get the reputation for having the really good stuff, more hallucinogenic. So they might put in, say, formaldehyde, or they might put in some acid, some LSD. And I, I, I cannot tell you how many young adults I have had in tears when they when we got their drug screens back and there was LSD and they swore up and down, oh my gosh, I only just smoked weed, nothing else. But yeah, where'd you get the weed? Well, it, they can't get it legally here. So if you were curious about it and you wanted to smoke pot, um, I would really encourage you to get that pot from a state where it is legal. It's um, because there's a lot more controls about it. And I have much more confidence that they are not adding things to their substance to make it stronger. They actually, they're doing lots of things to make the concentration of THC stronger. And it's, you know, seven, you know, seven or eight times stronger than it was 20 years ago, the concentrations, but it's one thing to make that stronger by making the THC concentration stronger. It's another thing to add acid and, um, not too many pre-meds I think want to experiment in that direction. Yeah, for sure. And it, isn't it interesting that the THC concentration is so much higher? And I read in the chapter, it is really kind of mind boggling that it was it's it's not the pot that quote unquote, my parents used to smoke, right? Right. I, that's why I say all the time, it's not your parents pot. I mean, because a lot of times you've got your either, you know, cool aunt so and so or or your parent who's like, Oh, my God, it's no big deal. Yeah, I smoked pot during college. And, and that was it. I smoked it a few times. And you know, it's not a big deal. And it probably wasn't for them, frankly. But the problem is, there's a lot, there's a lot of different issues. Um, I'm just gonna say to our concentrated audience here, I cannot tell you how many honor students, pre-meds, very intense, you know, uh, as many of us are, type A personalities about our grades, and we get super anxious. And a lot of people fall into the habit of using pot to calm down to relax and they feel like it's going to help their sleep and um, the reality is that both pot and alcohol may make you sleepy and may make you fall asleep faster but it does not improve your quality of sleep and frankly particularly with pot we see a lot of increase in anxiety and paranoia and different things and so it is 
uh, this is not a good use of that. Yeah, and I'm so glad that you brought up type of personalities. We'll definitely get into that in a little bit. But I think what I want to talk about at ADD and ADHD, I think that's a good way to segue into the next uh, topic. So you have given talks on ADD and ADHD. Uh, it has been increasingly the case that we have more students with such diagnosis. And so let's just say that a patient is diagnosed with ADD uh, and is prescribed stimulants like Adderall. Now, there have been cases where students are selling some of their prescribed Adderall to their friends, especially during test weeks and final week. So how would a physician regulate who they give Adderall to, right? It's like, are there any other stimulants that are not as widely, quote unquote, abused in the common drug marketplace? Um, there are Stratera mainly, but, you know, I will tell you, I am definitely not an ADD expert. Um, in fact, I chose in my private practice, even though I'm family medicine, certainly fully qualified to prescribe it. I actually chose not to prescribe it, um, for a huge variety of reasons in my own private practice. Um, partly I had excellent access to neurologists, um, who had a whole team of, uh, you know, uh, psychologists and stuff who taught the behavioral modifications. It's my pet peeve. I don't believe in giving anybody, whether it's a, an antidepressant anti-anxiety or uh, an ADD med without the behavioral component counseling along with it. And I didn't have the time and the team to be able to do that. But so all that being said, um, some campuses, a lot of, a lot of campuses, the physicians in the health center do not prescribe it. And that is done through neurologists and other primary care providers in the community. It's really rough because I will tell you, there is a lot of selling of um, Vyvanse is probably the thing we get seen the most or, or the short acting um, ADD meds like Zenzetti is the name brand, you know, they sell for like five bucks a pill. And if someone is taking it, you know, if you, if you take one, is it going to improve your concentration? Yep. It's going to improve your concentration short term, just like caffeine will do the same thing. My generation did no dose, which was just a high dose caffeine. And so yes, it does, but it also is going to make you feel, can potentially make you feel anxious. You know, it doesn't, it's not been really shown to improve test scores. So it's also a felony if you get caught selling that, like, you know, you're, you, you give your buddy five bucks for a pill. I mean, the odds are good. You're not going to get caught, but there's also a fair number of uh, undercover policemen on college campuses and, and they do do stings on this pretty regularly. So it's really not something you want to be messing with in the pre-med track. Yeah. Um, you asked me uh, in the questions ahead of time about long-term effects of use of this, you know, I kind of defer that to my neurology colleagues. I certainly read about it from time to time. For someone who has ADD, who is taking appropriate amounts of prescription stimulants, um, there's not a big concern about it. The problem comes with abuse, not use. So if people are taking it unprescribed or taking it because you're on call and you need to keep functioning and say, so you, you you're going to end up with insomnia and irritability and, you know, <laughs> all the things that come from that plus or minus some strain um, on the heart. But, but yeah. yeah, my main yeah. thing is if you, if you truly have attention deficit, go get diagnosed and get a prescription. It, it, it absolutely can be life-changing in a very, very good way, but using these drugs casually, um, 
as a study aid is just a recipe for disaster. Yeah, if you're not getting it from a prescribed source, then you can definitely get it in other not so safe ways. Um, Adderall specifically has been an issue uh, in the pre-med and medical community because there are students who take it and they believe it helps them perform better on tests that they would have if they weren't on Adderall. But I think maybe there's some sort of the test results don't actually improve. Uh, There's no correlation to it. But I guess the increased sense of concentration gives the um gives a false uh sense of premise right and at the end of the day though it is kind of unfair for the rest of students who are trying to study without any stimulants right and we're going to disregard coffee of course but we can get into caffeine later especially when the medical community is so competitive type a personalities right how would we discourse the use of adderall you know just it's hard to, let me just say that it's hard to, and this is coming from somebody. I don't even drink coffee. I don't drink coffee or tea. I do. I do drink Coca-Cola, but I actually don't metabolize caffeine. And so um, it's not a good thing for me to have. caffeine. <laughs> so it's probably good that I don't like coffee or tea, but it's so pushed on you all through medical school internship, especially, you know, Oh, how can you get by without another cup of coffee? You know, we're, our just general drive is to constantly be pushed, looking for that stimulant. And so, um, you know, all I can say is to this very highly motivated, competitive, intelligent group is one, think about what you're risking if you get caught taking a prescription medicine that is not yours. Okay. We're not talking misdemeanor again. It's a felony. You know, it's, it's, it's a big, big deal. Um, and then you, then you're not going to have a career in medicine at all. Um, so one, there's that two, I mean, I'm all about prevention. I'm I'm always the one to do 10 behavior modifications so I don't have to take a medication. So along the same lines, you know, I'm the one who's going to say, okay, you know, when you start feeling sleepy, you know, literally stand up, do jumping jacks for a whole minute (laughs) because it's going to get your heart rate up and it's going to get that positive effect without some of the negative stuff that's going to cause insomnia later when you try and sleep. So um, mainly just, you know, appealing to one fear if you got caught. And two, uh, hopefully better, appealing to your sense of let's let's look at this and see intellectually, does it actually help or not? One thing to remember is that with these medicines, something that I really didn't appreciate through much of my practice, um, partly because I wasn't prescribing them, but there is such, you know, it's a stimulant. It makes people feel good. It makes you social. It gives you, they describe literally having like a, a swelling feeling in your chest of, of a, you know, rush of feeling good. And so when people feel that way, when they take it, of course, they feel like they're going to do better on a test. Um, and again, they might, you know, they're, they're, it does increase your focus initially, but it's not great on retention. Well, It is a very complex topic in the sense that we're about to get into, you know, obviously Adderall, like it is, it's not good to take it. And however, there are instances where it's like you can, like you see where someone is coming from in terms of when they're taking Adderall, right? So uh, I don't necessarily like judge people who are taking Adderall per se, because I can imagine some students and I've had some friends who are feeling discouraged after studying so hard for an exam, and then they don't do so well, right? So it is a nice, I guess, quote unquote, easy way out, especially considering all the stress, anxiety and depression related to student burnout, specifically in the medical field. And then 
so you hear about all this and then you hear people getting on Adderall and it's just like, okay, there's also this other issue that comes with the side effects as, as like you were talking about. So it is a very thing, but it's a quick fix. I mean, it's to me, it's not all that different from the signs that I see every day when I drive around town, there's always these paper signs stapled to um, uh, telephone poles and such to say, you know, there's lose 30 pounds in 30 days. And, and frankly, some people take Adderall for weight loss too. Um, I didn't know that. Okay. Especially in dancers, we see it a lot, trust me. But um, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And the same thing is true with Adderall. But again, you feel good. It, it is a feel good drug when you take it. Um, it doesn't feel so great when you when it wears off and then you need more, you want more. And so um, it's just, it's such a fine line. And again, and if you have ADD, that's use of it. That's not abuse. And that's an appropriate use of it. And if you think you're struggling and you're bombing tests because you literally just, you know, you can't turn your brain off and, and you've done behavioral modification things, then by all means, talk to your doctor. I'm not discouraging prescribing it. I'm just discouraging people using it that's not theirs. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm so glad that you talked about behavior modifications because I feel like people don't necessarily take um, stepping into account where there's something out there that is external. It's like, okay, I'd rather take something that is external rather than work on the internal well-being, such as meditations. We have exercise, things like that, getting um, seven to nine hours of sleep, things like that. Obviously, that helps a lot. So, And I was actually recently talking to um, um, an oncologist, Dr. Laura Vader, um, on the show, and we were talking about how the path to medicine sometimes really takes a lot out of you, right? It is very strenuous. So, And I believe like you can provide us a grounded insight into this matter, considering that you had a role um, have a role in your um, as a clinical instructor at at a medical school. Um, so, did you come across issues where you saw chronic burnout within students that prevented adequate, I guess, knowledge retention or just hindered their ability to learn or to practice? Well, sure. I mean, I yes, as and and all of this is pre-COVID. You know. Um, obviously the pandemic has just magnified so much of this. That's a whole different topic, but, but yes, there is so much burnout and pressure. And now with all the emphasis on, you know, when you're in medical school, the emphasis on the, what you need your test scores to be at each level so that you can even pick the right specialty for you when, you know, your first year, you, you shouldn't, you know, you don't know what specialty you want to be. You really, I mean, I hate to see people going into medical school saying, I only want to do this, which happens a lot. And that's because maybe their mom and their dad is this specialty, or they volunteered or worked at, you know, an ophthalmologist as a scribe or whatever. And I, and I get that, but, but think about it. You like that because you had exposure to that. You know, why not? Of course, I'm family medicine, so I'm biased that I think people should look at everything. <laughs> and I like everything, actually, except anesthesia. My husband's an anesthesiologist, so it's not, it was just like a mouth spit thing. But anyway, <laughs> um, but you know, I think there's extraordinary pressure placed on people, and we are certainly seeing lots more. I mean, sadly, we're seeing more deaths by suicide, which we absolutely don't want to see. We 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 need to be picking up 
on signs and symptoms of depression much earlier in intervening. And so, yeah, I'm not surprised that people look for quick fixes, whether it's pot to calm their brain down or alcohol to do the same. You know, I, I understand why everyone is looking for these things, but also as future clinicians, we kind of look at the big picture and I'm a huge prevention person. So one of the first things I talk about is their exercise. How much exercise are you getting? I go back to all the old studies that used to say that, you know, 30 minutes a day, seven days a week of getting your heart rate up, whatever it is, walking, biking, swimming, whatever. Um, but that that was equivalent to low doses of antidepressants. The original studies were done with Zoloft. I, you know, that it's true, <laughs> you know, daily exercise, aerobic activity, increases, you know, the serotonin in our brains and makes us feel better. So I think it's really important to, I hope most medical schools are doing a much better job of destigmatizing students seeking counseling and seeking help when they are feeling anxious and depressed and getting them that counseling. And I think, you know, that's, that's the thing I want to see from the institutional level is opening up access to that. And the one positive I think that came out of COVID is telemedicine, especially for mental health, because a lot of people who didn't want to, particularly in undergrads campuses, I don't want to go to the, you know, I don't want to be seen walking into this office, but um, now they can do it in their dorm room, sitting on their bed. Yeah. And there's a lot of good that's happening in terms of, you know, having the internet. Now, one thing that I do want to highlight is social media and how it kind of accentuates uh, some of these symptoms that we have seen in the academic field. So things obviously get very skewed in terms of what is being put forward and for, for lifestyle and the glamour of medicine that sometimes really fails to, I would say, highlight the dark twisted turns or the off days, right? right? So, and I say that because the white coat looks very appealing in the photos on Instagram, but it can be very tough for someone, you know, who is struggling to get through their own journey and they see that external glamour and it gets into their heads. And this leads to comparing oneself to another, even on a subconscious level, right? So, being a social media expert like yourself, um, how do you think one can persevere? I don't know if persevere is the right word, but uh, against these detrimental effects. I wish I had the answer to that because I think I'd be uh, the next Nobel Prize winner. <laughs> but, um, right. You know, one thing that I always encourage um really everybody, but since I'm usually speaking to college students, college students to do is to schedule your social media. And uh, I mean, we all spend, I know I spend way more time on it than I should, even though some of it's part of my job, which makes it, that's my excuse that it takes me longer to be on it. But, um, but the reality is I, I am. So I'd say, you know, schedule it in little 10 minute segments as a break, as a study break, but don't be doing it right when you go to bed, because it, I mean, you know, we're all, you're tired, hopefully when you go to bed yeah. and, and then all you do is you're looking at all of your, whether it's your peers or whether it's the people you aspire to be, and you're looking at them at their absolute best that they're posting, but it, it just, it just repeats, you know, all these images, like you said, over and over, oh, wow, look at them. They're, they're off saving the world or they're, you know, um, or all your friends are getting married and having kids and you're not. And, you know, like there's, Oh, the comparisons just never stop in terms of showing. So one, one thing I tell people is schedule it 
that's practical advice. 10 minute segments, maybe three times a day, maybe with your meals, breakfast, lunch, dinner, or with a snack, whatever, so that it's in small bite-sized pieces and it's not totally bombarding you all day. Because a lot of people, every time it goes off, you know, we know that your serotonin levels go up every single time you get a notice. I mean, even, even if you don't look at it, it's, you know, it's a little, little dopamine surge in there. And so um, trying, you know, trying to silence your phone, put it more on do not disturb, look in concentrated segments, and then look at your own media too, and realize, oh yeah, well, I only, you know, I look pretty darn happy and I'm, I'm awfully successful when you look at your own. So compare apples to apples. In terms of showing kind of, you know, that dark side of medicine, it's, it's such a balance and we don't see as much of it. You know, I'm, um, do you know the book House of God? It was the classic book. You probably don't know it. Um, before I went to medical school, I was given this book to read. It's a, it's a fictional account of, um, of medical school. It's definitely the good, the bad, and the ugly, and more of the bad and the ugly than the good. And, but it's, it was true. And it, it was helpful to read in that when, as I went through rotations and I had my first patient die and I had my first patient that I had to give the die, you know, I had to tell them that they had cancer or, you know, that was back when HIV was new. And so, you know, lots, lots of that. It, it was helpful to me to have had that frame of reference, but there's such a fine line now and you did, medicine is being so disparaged right now with the whole polarization about COVID that I don't think there's any practicing doctor that wants to show anything particularly hard or negative because, because we're trying to... It's already very, uh, very tough as it is. It is. It's yeah. a shame because let me just say, for all of you, medicine is fabulous. Would I do it again? Absolutely. Have I, have I been lucky in that I have the best husband on the planet who is an anesthesiologist. And so he, he has been more of the breadwinner, which has allowed me to work part-time, even when I had my own private practice to balance all my creative needs to be the Girl Scout leader and do those kind of things. You know, yeah, I'm super lucky, but I also worked really hard and had my own practice. And I mean, I think there's just not a field that's more rewarding. And I'm not talking family medicine. I'm talking all of medicine. I mean, at the end of the day, certainly now, nobody goes in, hopefully, nobody's going into medicine to make money as your profitable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling all of you staring at this huge amount of debt. Yeah, I don't have to explain this to you. But the point is, you know, that, that used to be more of an attraction. There's a lot of easier ways to make money where you're not on call on weekends and holidays and all of that stuff. But all that being said, you know, it is such a privilege to be able to hear people's life stories and help them with their medical and social problems along the way. It really is rewarding. So don't give up. Thank you so much. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, one of the things that you did mention, which I kind of want to dive a little bit deeper into. I mean, you can tell me if 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 that's not the path, but uh, you did say something about we shouldn't use or look at social media right before we go to bed. Is it because it turns on uh, like an active state of our mind that leads to bad sleep cycles or, you know, disturbs the REM cycle? Well, yeah, the blue light from screens definitely disturbs your sleep. And ideally, ideally, you should not be on screens for two hours before you go to bed. Honestly, I just don't find too many people that can even do that right now uh, in college students and medical students. I mean, just because of life 
and you're studying. That being said, I tr- I really try and get people to spend that last hour before bed off a screen because it will definitely improve the quality of your sleep. And so save your, t- whether it's showering, doing dishes, all the things that you have to do, laundry, save those for the end of the night before bed, because it will keep you off of a screen for that hour. Um, the other part's just the mental comparison. You know, you don't want that to be the last thing on your mind. And then you're just perseverating on that when you're trying to go to sleep. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So we're going to shift gears a little bit um, because I think it would be unfair if we don't dive into STDs because it is one of your fortes. So there is a stigma around STDs that it deviates to a us versus them mentality uh, for folks who don't have STDs. Right. So and I mean, I don't know if you have seen Dallas Buyers Club. Um, It's the movie with Matthew McConaughey. Mm -hmm. And that movie really highlights this issue very well but then it also kind of took place in the late 1900s where it was kind of more of an issue but the stigma still stands to an extent to this day um so for folks i guess who are not uh involved in the sphere that is stds what should they learn uh that may help to dispel their assumptions and we can also talk about preventative measures uh for stds in terms of how particularly um undergrads can mitigate their chances of being affected with stds right so here's my big take-home message um I guarantee you that 100% it is still stigmatized today in that everybody thinks, you know, it's not it's not my group, it's not my well-educated medical school classmates. Clearly they wouldn't have a nasty disease. <laughs> that would just never happen, right? Except, you know, these these bugs don't care what your skin color or social economic status is. And, you know, I never thought I would end up becoming sort of this STD expert, which I'm 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 happy to talk about, but I'm also happy to be moved on to fully college health. Um, but what happened was in my private practice and I had a very well to do private practice. So I happened to be located in a wealthy part of town. People were very well educated, all the privileges and yet they were shocked when I was diagnosing them with an STD. And the most common thing, frankly, was genital herpes from oral sex. So people are like, oh no, um, I, there's still there's still a fair amount of, uh, there's all kinds of cultural issues in the South. And one of them is maintaining your virginity, but it's fine to have anal sex or oral sex. And that, that doesn't count towards your virginity, which you know I, I'm not making a judgment about that. I'm just saying that that's how a lot of people look at it. And because they look at it that way, they think that they can't get a disease, Um, but you can. And so the worst part about this is in in this mindset of what would never happen to anyone like me is then when they get a diagnosis and I tell them, well, you've got genital herpes, it's like I've given them a death sentence. They think socially I have just, they will never get married. They will particularly, the girls take it harder than the guys by and large. And um, with some good reason, because genital herpes can be worse and uh, in women would recur more with, with menstrual cycle outbreaks and things like that. But acutely everybody's devastated by any yucky diagnosis, whether it's diabetes or, or herpes, uh, uh, not that they're yucky, but I'm just saying. Right. Nobody wants a medical diagnosis of anything, really. You know, it's okay to have that reaction initially, but the reality is these these diseases are just super common and we treat them all the time and it does not doom you to a life of being alone. 
Um, I think understanding the numbers, how common these diseases are, is really important. I think the big thing that um, particularly young adults, college age and medical school, people want to hear that hookups are safe and, and fine. And the reality is the more people you're with, the higher the risk is that you are going to catch an STD just because that's the nature of these things. And so I'm not saying that you should never have a hookup. That's your that's your personal decision. But I'm also not going to say that it's safe. Now, that being said, being super consistent about wearing condoms and using condoms with oral sex, which everyone always is like, what? Why, why would you do that? But at the same time, if I ask, well, why do you think there's flavored condoms? Hello, there's only one reason for that. So someone's putting their mouth on it, right? So use, use condoms as a barrier um, if you have a male partner and you're being intimate and, um, and get tested and have, make sure you, that you have the HPV vaccine. You know, the best thing that's happened in the past 10, 20 years is, in my opinion, in medicine was the HPV vaccine because, you know, not only does it prevent cervical cancer and other HPV-related cancers, but you know, we're seeing over a million cases of genital warts per year. And I will just tell you, I, I don't remember the last time I treated one because by and large, all my patients now have been um, vaccinated. And so we're not dealing with genital warts anymore. And that's a very happy thing. Yeah, that is really good to hear. I do want to go a little bit into your uh, new edition that is about to come on uh, for your book. Can you uh, give us a little uh, bit of Scooby Snacks in terms of the topics that you have added? Just the name of the topics. Sure. I actually, there's not that many new topics, to be honest. So COVID, Zoom fatigue, because, you know, we didn't even know the word Zoom in when I turned that, I turned in the first manuscript in November of 2019. So <laughs> Zoom fatigue. Um, and then I did some kind of fun ones. I did uh, sort of a spring break dermatitis kind of chapter with uh, noceums. And uh, if anyone's had that, if they've jumped into an ocean and come out because they were being stung all over their legs, what that feels like talking about that and uh, bartender dermatitis. <laughs> bartender dermatitis. I like that. Margarita dermatitis. So, you know, you, you guys got to get the book for that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's perfect. So we are near the end of the podcast and it is tradition around here that I take you through a guided story as a closing remark. We like to imagine that you are a traveler who stopped by Doctor's Inn to rest for lunch. Now, before you leave, the innkeeper, which is me in this case, asks you to share one quote or piece of advice so that I can frame it on my wall. So what would that piece of advice be? It can be something you live your life by, a principle, an ideology. So my dad was a professor. And there are certain things he told us probably every day of our lives growing up. And some of them I hear, you know, I hear it coming out of our kids' mouths now. And I actually have it, I believe. Yeah, I do have it. I think in the, as a quote in the beginning of the book, if you didn't fall, you weren't trying. Anytime we came home from a new activity or if we were crying because we tried out for something, I tried out for twirler, you know, and I didn't make it. My dad's like, you know, if you didn't fall, you weren't trying. Keep it up. That's so, a really good quote. 
That's fine. Always, always be reaching for that next thing and don't be afraid to fall. We all fall. Perfect. Thank you so much, Dr. Grimes, for this much needed episode. You know, we went through a lot of useful advice and really nuanced topics that we don't get to dive into. And I'm so glad that we did because you're so much so big into preventative care and your insights are, I think, are going to be very beneficial for the audience. So thank you so much. And it was really a pleasure. Well, I really enjoyed talking with you and good luck to everybody in the audience. And again, medicine is a great profession. Don't let the turkeys get you down. Just keep moving forward and it will be rewarding. Here, here. All right. A major thank you to all you lovely homo sapiens who stopped by Doctors In. All our show notes can be found on www.doctorsinpodcast.com. You can also search up Doctors In Podcast on Instagram and on YouTube to watch the animated videos for each of our episodes. Also, don't forget to check out Dr. Grimes' book, The Ultimate college student handbook health handbook as uh, we have a new edition dropping in so see you next time bye